Hello and welcome to Philosophy Casting Call, the podcast that features underrepresented philosophical talent. I'm Elena Gutzimamaril, your host and producer. This is the last episode of season three. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this project. It means a lot to me. Today's guest is someone who has taught me so much about digital advocacy and how to spot ableism in the online content we create and consume. Her coming out as a philosopher of social media was also what prompted this season of Philosophy Casting Call's theme of interdisciplinarity. So if you've seen the title of this episode, you have probably guessed that discussing today's topic will involve some light swearing, so please be advised if you are listening at work or around small children. I should also note that it was recorded in November 2022, right after Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter. So that was a context for some of the references to dire social media landscapes that we make in this episode. Be sure you stick around until the end to hear our discussion on Olivia Rodrigo and artistic authenticity, a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And please give a warm welcome to digital communication scholar Jess Rauschberg. Hi, Jess. Thanks for agreeing to speak to me. Hey, Elena. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to join uh, you today and talk a little bit about what I've been working on. Yeah. So this is another case of us kind of following each other's work and activism remotely. And now we finally get to sit down and talk about what it is that we do. So could you introduce yourselves to the listeners. Yeah. So hi, everyone. My name is Jess Rauschberg. I'm a doctoral candidate in the Department of Communication Studies and Media Arts at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And I am not a philosopher by training, but I think it really drives the work I do. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But I'm really interested in philosophies of social media and disability and How do these come together on the platforms we use every day uh, to communicate or work or share joy and silly things? So your program is digital media and communication cultural studies or something? Yeah, it's a weird like, uh, well, okay, I'm going to rephrase that. Um, It is a joint program uh, between a communication and media arts department. So I would say like maybe heavier on the media arts and like media production side of things, although I don't, that's not where I'm positioned. And then um, we also have, so we're housed in that program, but um, we are affiliated with the English and Cultural Studies Department. So my PhD supervisor is appointed in English. So we get a lot of cool things coming out of our program. And I think um, it was a good fit for me because I'm interested in absolutely everything. And I like to have a hand in every pot, so to speak. And just figuring out all the different things I can do to incorporate into not only my work, but I'm just really interested in learning about everything. And so I felt like that kind of program was really good for my, I guess, professional training as well, but like just my my personal interests and getting to learn about all sorts of things. So that makes you the perfect person to talk about interdisciplinarity and as I said, I've followed you online for years, but recently you started tweeting about 
philosophy of social media, and I was really intrigued. So how would you define interdisciplinarity and like what you do? I don't know if I would call communication a field or media studies a field. Of course, like there are things that make these two areas of academic inquiry distinct, but they're so young. For example, like communication, um, if you look at history of communication, at least in the United States, where I did my first part of my my academic training, it emerged as a post-war discipline. Um, so post like World War II, during the Cold War, it became like different facets of the communication discipline. And of course, I'm simplifying it. There's certainly more to it. Um, became a response to navigating information and and media industry, the emergence of these media industries in a in a post World War II world. And so these are much newer disciplines that certainly have their. Some people see it as very social scientific, so closer to psychology, or which would be a little bit more on the post positivist side of things, right? Um, and then some see it more as anthropology, like using ethnographic methods, and then others. I'm sort of like in the sweet spot between humanistic inquiry and and critical qualitative social science. Um, So maybe more closer to humanities, like literary criticism, uh, rhetoric, things like that. And so I was already in a very interdisciplinary discipline that's almost not quite a discipline, so to speak, because there's so many ways that people conceptualize communication in media, and there's so many different ways to do it. But I think I've just always been in those kinds of spaces. I mean, my undergraduate degree was an interdisciplinary social science program that had both theoretical and applied aspects. And so I've always been really interested in the critique, but also what comes next. I'm not satisfied with just saying this sucks and this is like really racist. This is really ableist. And here's how that happened. But I'm like, okay, great. We un- we need to understand that part. And I'm not saying like, oh, that's not good enough. It is important, but we need to have the what's next. And so I think considering all this work on social media that has really risen in the past 15 years, um, sometimes I think we don't, researchers don't necessarily understand the like what was driving industries or what's driving different companies or creators to to behave in certain ways or create in certain ways. And and how is that influenced by offline ideologies? And so that's what I'm interested in. And I'm really influenced by scholars like Andre Brock or Wendy Chun, who are primarily using critical race theory to think about how we formulate these, these social media industries or how new media technologies are designed, developed, and used. And so I'm really interested in understanding creators' behavior, but not necessarily from a psychological standpoint, but from like what what's happening online and also offline to create and drive these these trends or um, styles of posting, creation, uh, memes, things like that. If I understand correctly, you're someone who like even in your own personal life are very online. Like you've been online in various ways for years, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I've definitely had like my own, I mean, and not even on every platform, right? Like, I, what's interesting about me, I think, is that I'm someone who like has been very reticent to be on certain platforms. Like, I know Instagram came into fruition when I was in high school, and I didn't have it until I was a university student, even though my friends had Instagram, but I was all over Tumblr. And so yeah, like, it's interesting to be in these spaces as someone who grew up 
online. I think I'm probably one of that like last generation of of uh, people who had like an analog childhood sort of like of course the computer was a thing like the personal computer was a thing the World Wide web was a thing but I didn't necessarily access it until like I was like an older child and so it's interesting to like have gone through my formative like adolescent years but in a digital space and sort of the being the first generation of of kids to do that and I wanted to raise that because I feel like a lot of the discourse coming from maybe mainstream media but also from academia is attention paid to social media is either in a camp of it's destroying our lives and everyone is depressed because of it or we don't understand what this is and therefore every attempt to engage feels kind of awkward and tokenistic so yeah you growing up as a young academic in your own right um do you feel like being in this interdisciplinary area discipline was helpful was that freeing not having that kind of past or was it more difficult because you didn't have any clear touchstones to accept or reject or that's a really interesting question elena um I so the reason why I like joined like uh, Twitter in a more academic capacity. I've had Twitter in the past and like a personal one. I I deactivated it because I was just like I'm I'm just subtweeting all the time and I'm becoming angry, right? So to so to speak to that like earlier like point you made of there's this like big conversation of well it just makes people depressed and I I, I think. Not to be that person that turns to the work of Marshall McLuhan, you know, so for those who aren't familiar with his work, McLuhan is is very uh, well known for his work at the Toronto School of Communication and this idea of that medium. He had this famous essay, The Medium is the Message. And so understanding that the mediums we use to communicate shape the messages or the the content that we're sending out um, if, we're, if we're thinking about social media. And so... I think I had to really repair my relationship with social media and, and Twitter as one platform. And it's not necessarily like what Twitter is, but maybe how I personally was using it. So certainly using Twitter in a different way has, um, has really shaped my relationship with it. So I'm an American who did a PhD degree in Canada, or I'm completing my degree in, at a Canadian university that most Americans don't know what McMaster is. And so... I had a really good advice from a faculty mentor who said said with me who was also an international student and did a degree in a country that like they don't have citizenship in and so they said like having an online presence is really helpful in terms of networking or just like getting letting people know who you are and so I was already using Instagram to connect with just like in maybe a more informal like less like networking capacity but I created um how we met on the my Instagram account disabled PhD which I since deactivated just for personal reasons like it just wasn't serving its purpose for me anymore and I was doing a lot of people I did not like being treated like kind of like uh, oh like a just a content robot like why aren't you posting about this etc but I originally created that um, in early 2019 because I wanted to meet other disabled graduate students. It's pretty, as, as you know, it can be really lonely, uh, like in an offline space. And so I expanded to Twitter because um, I had had that advice and I was like, okay, maybe I'll use Twitter in a more like formal capacity. And I think maybe sometimes I'm a little bit more on the like playful side, but 
meet, getting to meet people on Twitter and in, in like the academic Twitter space, like, yes, it can be really toxic. And there are times where I just have to mute or just log off for a little bit. But I have met some really incredible people in that in that space. And so maybe to go back to your original question, like, how does you know the ways that we use social media and like thinking about these like contemporary like arguments or like debates about how people grow up online or how the the impacts of social media are impacting like us like I don't know I think that how I would respond to that it's really how you use it and the goals that you have for using it so I also think that people like any institution people go through cycles of feeling so when we are in an organization like Twitter, um, there are times where we're going to feel maybe not empowered, but we will feel like those important nodes of connection. And there are also times that, like I guess in the last week for, <laughs> for a lot of users on, you know, Elon Musk, like uh, acquiring Twitter, um, it makes you feel disempowered. But I also know that for a lot of disabled people as the Disability Justice Collective since Invalid um, I think says quite beautifully, the internet is a liberated zone for a lot of disabled people, especially as the pandemic continues. And so I like, that's why I'm not leaving mm-hmm. because that's the way to, since I don't have it, that, that Instagram account anymore, this is really my like big connection with other disabled people. And I don't want to lose that. Why I like Twitter as opposed to like Mastodon, let's say, is because Twitter allows you to be in many different places at once and I've been able to connect with not only just different disabled activists and writers and thinkers but other academics whether they're um, interested in disability or they're disabled as well like just people in different spaces that maybe like in a more curated space like Mastodon where you happen to be in an instance you can't always find that and I think that's what's special about being in some of these spaces that maybe gets overlooked by these mainstream debates about is this safe or like, this is good for everyone. I don't think it's necessarily like good or bad. Yeah, what I'm hearing is that your approach to it is very much informed by your own actual use of the medium. And so Mm -hmm. can you say a bit more about how that plays into your kind of research persona when you're looking into this? Like, because this is something that I have to deal with also, like, when you research things like eugenics or things like that as a disabled person, obviously sometimes it hits hard or it can feel very personal, but there's also a part of me when I do research that, you know, is in research mode and doing that. So I was just curious, like, how do you negotiate having all this life experience of using social media and then taking like zooming out, looking at what informs systems of usage or something yeah I think that has always been really hard for me so I started off as a like when I started like realizing that media studies was like my thing and that's what I wanted to do it was I was mostly looking at screen media so I think like film and television political representation of race and disability and class and in popular media and so that's easy right because you can, if you're not necessarily looking at fandoms, which I wasn't at the time, you can separate yourself from that text. And so like, yes, like this, this like series has a really like ableist or eugenicist depiction of uh, this disabled character, right? And this person is portrayed in that way. And so you can sort of separate yourself from that. When you study social media, and I understand my positionality as uh 
very entangled with the what I'm researching and what I study because I'm often participating in these. I wouldn't say like I'm leading these conversations or these movements. Um, obviously, that's not my role. I don't claim it to be my role. Um, I, I think about myself in the term activist is like, I don't know if I claim that for myself. If other people want to call me that, that's fine. They have in the past. But I, I, I understand it as very entangled. So that can be really, really complicated when you're trying to think about stuff. And it's like, I also have this personal attachment to things. Or I think it can be hard to separate like, your own feelings from the research or it's just like okay like I need to look at this question or I'm trying to think like something that really angered me recently was this 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 ongoing cross-platform memification of Leah Michelle and her being like this actress being supposedly illiterate right and just like even if she is a bad person or she has done some like really nasty things to her castmates and I don't deny those. Like, I, I, you know, if people are coming forward about that, I believe it. But it's like the way that it's intellectual ableism is in particular is used to vilify Leah Michelle or like make it's like just okay be, to make fun of her because it's like, oh, she is illiterate, quote unquote. Um, that was really difficult. And so there are times where I know I have to like log off or create boundaries. It's like, yeah, maybe I'm going to have to mute this hashtag for a little bit. Um, because it's getting in the way of like me being in community with people or it's just I I can't be in this space doing other research or like looking at other things when I just see videos or TikToks or reels or, or tweets again and again making light of, of intellectual ableism using like very and especially when it comes from other disabled people it really hurts um, as somebody with like pretty significant learning disabilities like mine isn't reading based but it's like yeah like people have said that stuff about me so it does hurt even though I know like it's you know it becomes complicated right because it gets really really personal when people are using disability as a as a, as a rhetoric of, of humor or release but in a way that's harmful and I think it reproduces these structures of eugenics and ableism and and contributes to other logics of white supremacy and and allow them to proliferate in digital spaces and I think that is really complicated and it's something I'm still learning to work through yeah I've been the crip killjoy in the room when people make these type of jokes or use ableist language that specifically refers to people with intellectual or cognitive disabilities and there's still I don't feel like there's an understanding people don't get it they're like but Mm -hmm. I'd say this endearingly or I always you know, but I was like, but you are perpetuating language that has been used to like institutionalize, sterilize, kill people, and you don't yeah. see that as a problem. And yeah, it it can it can get awkward in social situations. How did you discover that you wanted or that you were creating or practicing a philosophy of social media? When did that kind of enter your radar? Ooh, okay. I think I've always been pretty interested in philosophy. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, I did like a bachelor's degree in like a transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary social science um, program. So I was, I did my bachelor's at the Carter School for Conflict Analysis and Resolution at George Mason University outside Washington, D.C. I thought like, oh, I'm going to do education policy work. I was really interested in understanding 
why things happen like socially like so I guess a better way of saying it is why why are things in like in, ter- in terms of institutional structures like why is it this way and how did we get here and like what are the possibilities beyond it um and it wasn't like a I don't think it came from a place of like I want to fix things like I think it was like I just want to understand what's going on and and what are the next possibilities um then I started taking I saw my like I specialized in community and organizational conflict and so I thought like maybe I'll work and do nonprofit research really glad I didn't do that um but I started taking a, a coursework in my, my specialization and um, I took this excellent class in community and organizational conflict so looking at like conflict and conflict resolution styles at the maybe the community or the organizational institutional level so like somewhere between interpersonal conflict but not as like large as a macro like nation state mm-hmm. conflict right um and we, we we i was introduced to the work of michel foucault and like other post-structuralists talking about like societal structure and and the rules that we have that like make our shape our worlds right and i was really intrigued by it um I then started taking courses in disability studies um, through GMU's Women and Gender Studies program where I was introduced to, I would call them philosophers, maybe not everyone does, but um, the work of queer color um, critique, particularly from Jaspir Puar and uh, Jose Esteban Munoz. And I was thinking like, yeah, this is, I'm just really, I'm really intrigued by like what they're doing. And that's what I really love. At the same time, um, I was around a lot of graduate students, like who were teaching my classes, like so graduate teaching assistants who were teaching my classes, or um, I was also competing for my university's competitive public speaking team, which might be like one of the most American things ever. But, um, and that's a whole other can of words that, that I'm not going to go into. But I was forensics, yeah. yeah. So I competed for GMU's team. There, but um, I was around a lot of graduate students who were coaching my my team, and they were t- taking a lot of philosophy classes or reading a lot of um, of uh, philosophy. So, like, I remember a lot of them kept reading work by like Camille Paglia in, in their classes, and they were complaining about it. And they were telling like this the like, undergrad students they were coaching about it. And I was like, I want to know more. At this time, I don't know what was going on on Facebook, but there is like this, and I don't think they're as popular now. But the these creation of meme pages um, that were centered around philosophy. So I think about Deathnography, which is, I think, uh, an account run by an anthropology student in somewhere in Toronto. I, I don't know if they're still a, a doctoral student or if they've graduated, but they were making, like, anthropology memes. But so, so some of it was about, like, doing fieldwork and, like, making light of the – not light, perhaps, like, critiquing in a very satirical, profane way the fact that, like – ethnographic methods are just rooted in, in these like colonial logics and and using memes as a way to like start to generate that conversation but also um there were a lot of meme pages for philosophy and different philosophers and so that's what I think really really got me interested in that understanding how like memes we like are just sort of brushed away but I think there are these really powerful tools for how people make sense through language and symbols and sound of what's happening around them. And so I see the, I conceptualize the meme as a site of release. Sometimes that can be good and sometimes that can be negative and sometimes it can be a combination of, 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 of in between. And so 
I love these pages. They kind of died off or became less frequent. Like I would say in the late 2010s, that was more of like a like a mid 2010s thing. And then as I was doing some research for my dissertation, um, on I, I started researching disability justice like movements and organizing online and also like ableism in digital spaces and how platform social media platforms um, use ableist ideas and or how ableism rather informs the platform structure and algorithms and, and things like that. Um, I noticed a proliferation of these text-based memes that sometimes use philosophy, sometimes don't. So the shit posts um, and different than like a 4chan shit post. Sometimes, well, sometimes it's similar, unfortunately, but this like new way of shit posting using text and image. And I think that's what really had me thinking about the philosophy of social media. Like, why are people shit posting? Well, what's happening offline? Like mm. fascism in several countries. Um, there's a global pandemic that no one's listening to. There's like mass death around the world. And people are in lockdown. People are being overworked. People are not being paid enough. They're miserable. People are just unhappy. But like in the creation of these memes, there is a release. There's a there's a joy that happens. And I'm not saying that's like, oh my God, like I'm so excited. But like there's something that happens when you get that. And I'm being a little psychoanalytic here. When you get that feeling from yourself onto the 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 text of the of the meme right um and so that's what really had me interested in this philosophy of social media so like why are people doing what they do and and what's driving that so i understand shit posting as crass excessive surreal multimodal uh so using the combination of text image and or sound or moving image communication styles often seen through memes that just are absurd and sometimes more often than not they're offensive and it originates as a style of um of, of of posting or or internet communication that originates on what i call the bowels of, of the web so uh message boards like 4chan and 8chan i i understand like instagram and 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 i would say also twitter shit posting as something a little bit different than than this like forum shit posting so like it has these really I, I will say genuinely like terrifying at, at, at several points uh like white supremacist like really racist ableist eugenicist origins and i don't think that shit posting all shit posting is like that particularly um the instagram and twitter shit posting so a lot of these text-based memes um where maybe it's like a picture of I'm in like I'm involved in a lot of succession fandoms. So the, the HBO show about those rich white people that just want to be in control of the media. Um, but like a lot of these like Kendall Roy, who is one of the main characters on Succession, Succession, these these shit posts about him. It's just a lot of like queer women and femme people posting about like their gender stuff, gender stuff or disability stuff or sexuality stuff. Right. So it's a way to release like these offline pressures or even online pressures about like, I am not what the world wants me to be or like, I, how do I exist in this hostile world? And a meme can be the shitpost could be a, a way to release that. Um, and so that's how I understand shitposts. In about around 2012, I remember my friend Dan and I would create memes that specifically reference things that happened in our university. So therefore yeah. would like not be legible to like tons of people but it was a great kind of 
identity forming moment of like participating in what was like a wave of meme making I guess and so we would do our own philosophy memes and we would just feel very happy about that and then it went nowhere but yeah (laughs) but it's something for like a meme could be something for yourself it doesn't need to necessarily go viral so I think like there are these beautiful like meme accounts on instagram that have like maybe like 30 followers sometimes it's like less than that but they're just they're just making things and it's wonderful and they're so absurd and silly and surreal and like probably don't make sense if you're not in the fandom that they're posting about or like a lot of the times like i've seen a lot of um you know those like affirmation Mm -hmm. memes like i will drive my car today so a lot of universities make their own affirmation memes and what you mentioned about like you and your friend making memes about your experience as a student at your, your your undergrad institution like I see people doing that now but it's interesting how like Instagram I think is can be a less contained space so like yeah like thinking about what if you were making those now and like how would you share them and how would pe- different people see them and maybe you know, it would be the same or maybe it would be different. And so I'm really interested, I think, in the relationship between like what we create and where we're sharing that information or sharing those texts, right? Like, because a meme is a text. Mm-hmm. It's some, it's an art, a cultural artifact, if you will. No, it, it really is. And like you, I kind of grew up more analog. Um, and then I got Instagram only like in my second year of my PhD I was like a real late holdout but then you start thinking about your life in terms of what you're going to post or how you're going to post it and so also with Twitter what I like about Twitter is that you can only repost if that's what you feel like whilst with Instagram I feel like there is this pressure to like take a picture do a caption do something whilst on Twitter you can be like this person is cool. I want more people to see it. And so you kind of repost and do that. And so thinking about how you interact on Twitter and how you interact on Instagram, and I'm sure other platforms like TikTok have their own thing. But it's interesting how you start living your life thinking about how you're going to interact online. And part of me is like, is this a negative thing? Am I like living for the online as opposed to just like living my life in the now? But as you said at the mm-hmm. very beginning, a lot of my community as a disabled person, as an overseas person who's like not close to my family geographically anymore, I think being online is so important to so yeah. many aspects of my life. So is it really terrible if I'm thinking, oh, this is a funny joke that my dis- disabled friends will like enjoy when I post it later? Like, I don't think that's necessarily bad. I just think we need to maybe look at how we integrate all of these things in our daily routines. Exactly. Like different people have different practices around um, posting. And I think, Elena, you get you get at that really like you you summarize it like so well, like it's it's nuanced. And I think I think what the issue is, is the there is um blame placed on the, the account holder or the poster, right? Like, oh, like you're just living to post on Instagram. But so I, I, I think it's like really wonderful you brought that up because I'm working on my I, we've talked about this before my chat I'm working on a dissertation chapter on Instagram shitposting and because shitposting I don't think is like I think it has become popular based also like this influx of 
media, like an internet culture, culture reporting from like people like Taylor Lawrence and um, folks at New York Times um, or like Vox and these like uh, popular press news outlets certainly have made it popular. But I think it's also like how the plat- a platform and the industries that, that emerge from a platform, how do they shape different behaviors or, or strategies for posting? Because I don't know when you joined Instagram, but when I joined Instagram, it was late 2013. You filtered everything. You posted when you wanted, whatever you wanted. You used all the hashtags. You used a vignette like filter where you were like blurring out the edges. And you could post this, I mean, this is before you had the option to post like 10 pictures at a time and do the multiple posts that came in 2017. So you just, you could post like five Instagrams in a row and that was fine. But then I noticed like a couple years later that the behavior started changing. And this is like when the rise of the influencer industries in like 2015, 2016 become very apparent. And you see a lot of different changes in how people post. Maybe you only post once a week or you post three times a week. Um, and you do have, I mean, obviously now I think the algorithm on Instagram is so changed that this doesn't make sense anymore. Um, but you would post at certain times, like, okay, the best time to post is like 5 PM Eastern standard time on a Monday. Right. Um, they have the, all these websites, these like, uh, what, um, the media scholar, Sophie Bishop calls algorithmic experts. So people mm-hmm. who have a platform on how to use Instagram or YouTube or Twitter to your full potential. Right. Um, you have ring lights. You start organizing events for influencers just to take Instagrams. And this trickles down or like situates rather the rest of the platform. So I noticed I was then an older university student. So I was like in my third and fourth year of university. And I started noticing, especially my friends who were a little bit younger than me, had totally different posting behaviors. And like one of them mentioned to me, you know, like Instagram is political. Like it's about what filter you use. It's about this. It's about that. And I was like, I mean... I don't understand that. Like, it's just an Instagram. And I'm like, this person was so right because, I mean, everything that we do has some kind of political, like, bent to it. I I certainly believe that. And I think that's what was happening on Instagram. Like, the way that the industries that were emerging on this platform from creators and influencers shifted the way we engage in Instagram. It became a much more sanitized or hygienic place. Mm Now, of course, we still have these these behaviors. And by sanitized, do you mean aesthetic like aesthetically refined there's an expectation to have a certain aesthetic status or something that is like instagram worthy or yeah yeah, i think that and also like you don't post certain things on instagram anymore right so then you have like uh around that time of like these more sanitized like aesthetically pleasing instagrams that are very curated and um you can tell there's a lot of effort put into it although they're made to see that there was no effort in taking the picture at all. Like, right, there's a the use of ring lights or special, like, backdrops, things like that. Like, the perfect caption um, posted at the perfect time. You see the emergence of, of burner accounts or, like, anonymized accounts. The Finsta, the fake Instagram, um, which are usually locked, secured, sort of anonymized. Like, maybe you can tell it's this person, but, like, it doesn't say, like, just Rauschberg on the account. It has, like something else that maybe only a few people would know. And that's where you start to post your more vulnerable, messy, silly, like unhinged behaviors that maybe wouldn't be happening on your, your rinse or your, your public facing Instagram. And of course, like those things are still in practice, but now you have like a couple years later in like 20, like during the pandemic, you have the photo dump 
right? Where everyone just posts like, oh, here are all my images from March, right? Um, and you have people posting different types of things. So it's still, I think, that sanitized, curated style, but it's certainly changed. And then you have now these shitposting accounts, um, which span all sorts of enclaves of, of, of Instagram. And so it's interesting because Instagram has really, really interesting, I will say, um, for lack of a better word, content moderation laws. And so that often target marginalized users, um, particularly sex workers, particularly disabled people, um, whose maybe photos include pictures of us of an ostomy bag or a mobility aid. Um, those folks are more likely to get censored by Instagram's content moderation algorithm and content human content moderators because there is a human at the end of the algorithm. It's interesting that now all these things are existing at once on the platform, on a platform that I think tried to become a very sanitized, like curated place, so to speak. And I have a question about this idea of shit posting as release. So the way I understand mm -hmm. it, shit posting is meant to disrupt. So it is a disruptive act and as you say, we associate it a lot with kind of alt-right fascist Nazi spaces, but you also pointed out that other people use this tactic of shitposting as well as an expression sometimes of exasperation or to release a sense of helplessness into what's actually going mm -hmm. on in the world and in their lives. And I'm curious from like a communications point of view, if we're thinking of it as a rhetoric act, is this solely disruptive or like perverse in the sense of like taking us away from the path we're on? Or is it also generative or is it possibly community building? Yeah, that's a, these are great questions. Um, I think certainly they build community. Um, there are entire, so I, as part of my dissertation, I have, um, I'm anonymized for now, won't be sharing who I am, but I have a shitposting account where I make these memes. I will eventually reveal myself. Exciting. Um, <laughs> Suspense. Yeah, exciting. Um, and it's actually like a lot of, especially coming from someone who has had the experience of being like, I mean, I never called myself an influencer when I was posting under like my, my disability advocacy account. Um, but you were. But I was a creator. And that I found to be very stressful right away. Um, but I enjoyed meeting people and it was like, I knew I was part of a community and I liked that, but I found it very stressful to create. This I find to be very different and it depends on like, but I also like haven't become like a very big account. So maybe when that happens, I will feel differently. But right now I like that it's a, like a little niche community and people are just being, I think there's um, aspects of being com in a community. In terms of being generative, like, I don't think that a, necessarily a shitpost is intended to invoke and catalyze social movements. I think they can be part of addressing like problems in social movements and a rhetorical strategy for um, talking about cert or communicating um, problems within like an organiz like uh, like a hashtag movement or hashtag activism or other forms of digital activism. I've seen that like. Gener like generate some really productive conversations but I don't think that shitposting is or Instagram shitposting rather is necessarily about like resistance 
Um, I don't think that was ever its intent. I think it is about that idea of release, right? So this thing that is like hurting you, whether it's like just these daily experiences with ableism or for some folks are shitposting about like uh, experiences of, with, with racism and racist institutions or individuals um, with the legacies of coloniality, with transphobia, with homophobia, with fatphobia, xenophobia, ethnocentrism, right? It becomes a tool to rhetorically release something. And I don't think it's necessarily about like, I'm going to change the world with this mm-hmm. meme, but maybe like, I can build community or generate a convert like a conversation with it. And so um, the, the idea that I, I like sort of conceptualize shit posts under is with this uh, from the media scholar, Arceli Dakimachi, who's um, does like media anthropology work on uh, disabled people and micro activist affordances. So how do disabled people improvise in an ableist world to make it a little bit more accessible. And she's not writing about social media, but I think her theorization is quite beautiful in the way that I see how it fits in, in how like disabled meme accounts or, or meme admins or just any any anyone really can use uh, the meme as a way to like as a mi- like the ship post as a micro activist affordance for um, being in an ableist digital space um, and then when you log off offline is just as ableist maybe in different ways right so I, I see that from like I guess that like the rhetorical strategies of ship posting I see it doing those two things. Um, from my experiences as someone who studies it and someone who's actually creating in that capacity as well. Yeah, I asked a question because it lives within this ecosystem that you've described of like becoming super curated and certain thing, certain presentations that the algorithm and its human masters <laughs> uh, like prioritize or deprioritize or want to showcase or want to hide away. Like you mentioned if a disabled person posts a picture of them with a foreign aid outside of their body it's not considered Mm -hmm. to be appropriate so I think it's interesting that the shitposting happens on that same platform and it okay I'm gonna use the word resist but not because it's intentionally resisting but because um it refuses the logic of like solving a problem it is yes. kind of like a primal scream on the internet, but it is still a choice to put it out there as opposed to like having your own frustrated moment in your bedroom, like you're broadcasting that. So it is a communication act. It is a rhetorical act, but I, I just think it's, it's interesting that it's like, it's not even, I want to be heard because like, it's just, I want to express myself. It's a kind of like yeah. cross between artistic expression without having any like artistic trappings I guess yeah I mean a lot of these I mean I don't think I'm at that level but some of these shit posters are just like I just am in awe of what they're creating it's it's really cool stuff and like really well done um I think like you you make a good point about the self-expression right like I want to have I want to show people I am an agentic person Mm -hmm. like I have agency even though I am moving in a world in which whoever you are, um, like, I guess, in the realm of disability, like a lot of neurodivergent people, especially those of us whose diagnoses fall under the category umbrella of intellectual and developmental disability, uh, uh, developmental disabilities, that one always trips me up. We are not seen as being agentic people. And I think the shit post 
and social media like does afford some of that agency back or is a way to um, be more agentic and self-expression and that's I think really special so I think like yes it's a very small act of of Mm. resistance or like I don't know if it's like not maybe not activism in the way that like a lot of people uh, conceptualize activism but I think it is and I think it can be used as like an activist rhetoric. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it's just like that. It's just a way to express yourself, communicate agency um, when maybe in other institutions or other spaces, like you don't have that. You're not seen, you're positioned to be based on who you are and how you are moving through that space. You don't necessarily have that. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what is really cool about Instagram posting. Yeah, it just makes me think that it refuses the idea that I have to create content to be like, look at this hack I have, or look at how to solve a problem, or how Mm. is ableism affecting my life? Like, it's not that sort of construction of like, if you make a YouTube video, of like, these are the ways in which ableism sucks. I don't know. I like this, this idea of activism that isn't activism in the sense of like, it, because it is it is disrupting, but it has yeah. like no intent of like being a teachable moment or doing any of these things. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's also really powerful. Like I didn't, well, I, I'm not trying to speak for all disabled like creators or influencers, but for those of us who have or do create about disability advocacy, it could be really exhausting. And also like, there are times where I'm like, what if someone who's going to hire me one day sees this on the internet and like, just assumes that, oh, like this person has like learning disabilities, not worth our time. And that became like, I thought that that was like the way I need to talk about my disabilities. And it's okay if like, that's how people like, that's the best way for someone else. Like, I'm not saying that like, no one should talk about their disabilities in this way. But like, it gets really exhausting. And then also like, yeah, it's just like, I don't know if I want that many people having access to mm-hmm. me in that way, um, because they still don't know, like, they know me as like this creator, right? But like, I don't know if I like am comfortable with doing that. And I don't think it's if it's not serving me in that sense, like, I don't know how it like, I just don't think that this is the most productive thing for me. Yeah. Um, because it became more of like, people just want me to exploit myself. And I don't think that's worth like, the likes. <laughs> anymore. It's just like, and I also had like personal things going on. And it was like, people were like, why aren't you posting? And I thought to myself, you know, I don't think this is this this account is for me anymore. But what has been really interesting about the shit posting project or experiment, let's say is that like, I can be a little bit more crass about my experiences with ableism in like the diagnostic space um, with these like interactions I've had with healthcare providers where they were just like really ableist, not to me, but just in general. And I'm like, Oh my God, I can't believe you talk to me like this. Like I I can only imagine what you're talking, what you're saying to your other patients and clients. And it's, I can do it in a way that like I can release that, like, trauma um without worrying about offending someone else like that was a big issue that I would face a lot when I had my like advocacy account is that I always whenever I would post something about myself I always had a dm or two waiting for me telling me that I was offending them or like why did you say this like that's I'm so offended and it's like 
but I'm using it to talk about myself and I would always be very clear. And then this is not saying like, this is not to say that like I was not open to being educated or like being corrected, but it was like very different than that. It was just like, I don't like how you talked about yourself. Mm-hmm. And that becomes very exhausting to, to kind of go through like every, like multiple times a week. Right. Or like you didn't post about like what I went through. So yeah. I'm offended. And it like I think that that, that uh, adds to a different conversation about platform labor and like the and it like sometimes it would hurt when it came from like other disabled people too. It's like I mean we all have different experiences um, based on who we are and where we're living and what kind of access to care we have or what access to care that we don't have. And so yeah, like that I think has been has been really interesting thinking about like the different types of creation that happens and maybe in this more sanitized or curated style of talking about my disability where it was kind of like trauma and inspiration porn-esque mm-hmm. and now I can kind of like oh this is like this angry feeling I, I can make memes that help me get maybe think through these like really traumatic experiences that I've had in like a healthcare provider's office that I might not have been able to post Mm -hmm. and quite freely or like express in the ways I felt the best way were to express on that, like on this other account. Right. So that kind of leads me into my last question, because I cannot let you go without asking about this idea of projecting, constructing authenticity Mm. online. So you've kind of talked about different ways of doing that, different ways that elicit certain responses both from the algorithm and from the audience and you have done some work on Olivia Rodrigo on TikTok Mm -hmm. can you speak a little bit more about this idea of creating an authentic persona on TikTok Ooh, okay so I'm gonna say this with a caveat that I am a TikTok lurker so I've never I don't post on TikTok I know some TikTok scholars um, are very clear that like in order to study you need to like also create your own content and I want to push back to that and say that um, there are people who just have TikTok to lurk so I'm doing like that me. too <laughs> yeah um, I, I just have a, like a like a burner where I just look at stuff um, so I, I'm doing a couple projects on authenticity the Olivia, uh, the Olivia Rodrigo project is really interesting so I'm making like a larger argument about post-modernity and and remix cultures and content creation. And so how, obviously, um, I do need to clarify that I'm not calling in this essay, Rodrigo a TikToker. Her stands on Twitter found me like posting about the article and did not read anything or even ask me stuff. They were just like, I can't believe people are just calling her a TikToker. Like, I hate academics. I'm like, I never called her that in the article. Like, I'm happy to send you my free print if you want to read it. But anyway, so I want to be clear. Like, I'm just talking about how she used TikTok to promote driver's license and then the remixing that occurred from other users about her work. Um, And a lot of people, like other artists or critics, um, called her work derivative. But like, a lot of artists do what she does. I think one of the reasons why she got a lot of flack is because she's a young woman She's also biracial, so I think there was uh, like a interesting, or maybe I wouldn't call it interesting, like a like a insidious combination of misogyny and racism happening in those reactions that were almost entirely from white people and white musicians. And Rodrigo is pretty open about her like being Filipina and like she really identifies with that. So. I think those connections like are pretty clear like it's not just a coincidence mm-hmm. because like other artists have done it for example like 
the Black Parade, My Chemical Romances, the Black Parade, is very, very similar to the Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, and the Infinite Sadness era. So there's like certain recycling of or remixing of what Smashing Pumpkins did in the like aesthetics and promotion of their album in, 20, in 1995 and uh, My Chemical Romance releasing the Black Parade in 2006, right? So within those like 11 years, you see like remixing and, and Rodrigo has is very clear about what she does um, and that she's taking what she likes and putting her own spin on it. And so what happens when I put the, this thing that works and this other thing that works that other people have done, but what happens when I put it together? And I think the way she used TikTok um, to promote her her single was really fascinating because TikTok is a platform that really prioritizes remixing and uses parody and play, which are important components of postmodern art and postmodern like culture, right? To represent something as new, or and I think that's where how she mediates her authenticity, right, and shows how she stands out. But she's very clear and very transparent about like. I'm not doing anything new necessarily. I'm just making it my own thing. And I think in that way, she challenges these like mass, these like, or I don't like the word master, these grand narratives of modern culture, right? This is the way we do things. This is how we promote music. This is how we release music. This is how popular music is written. And Rodrigo's like, no, it's not. And I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do this different thing to promote my work. That's sort of my work on like authenticity and remix cultures. And I think a lot of creators who are on these platforms who aren't celebrities in other capacities right but they're everyday creators are also working in in, in those capacities too right we're, we're trying to remix what sticks and and what people like but maybe using our own ways of self-expression to do that and I think that's something really cool that other disabled creators do really well I mean we are not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but we're just finding different ways to express ideas or thoughts through memes or videos or tweets or I guess if you're on Mastodon, you're toots. I don't like saying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and finding like ways to like through self-agency and self-expression to, to create new styles of relationality. And so that's that's where I'm at there. I'm working on some other authenticity and social media projects too. So stay tuned for those. Yeah, I'm going to stay tuned for sure because you've just described my whole methodology and my whole attitude to my own scholarship because I've resisted a lot of this idea of originality and producing oh God, original it. content. And yeah. from now on, I'll just be like, I'm in the Rodrigo school of scholarship. I'm, re- I'm simply remixing. I'm remixing. That's what, uh, that's what I'm going to tell my next reviewer too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because remixing can be very generative. Yeah. Remixing is not about plagiarism and it's not about not engaging with it because by engaging in the remixing you are creating a different narrative you are yeah coming at it from a different angle you are bringing whatever it is that you bring to the table in the act of remixing but i totally agree like i think that um there is beauty in remixing and uh, she's certainly not the first person to do it if you want to read more on remixing i have to plug in Alex Wahelier's essay Fenin, um, which was, it's older, like it's about, it's actually 20 years old now, but um, I read it last year and I was to my mind, in my mind, I was like, this is exactly what Olivia Rodrigo is doing. So he's looking at um, 
R&B artists and the use of the vocoder and, and different synthesizers to remix and sample music and what and sort of taking like a black studies critique of the human toward um, post-humanist scholarship that is overwhelmingly like very white and Eurocentric. And so great article if you want to delve more into this um, beyond like the TikTok world or like look at what other people are doing. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll definitely stay posted on all of that. I love anything to do with authenticity and challenging or kind of obsession with authentic representation. Yeah. And I always end by asking people what you are reading that's giving you life right now, or if it's not reading, then watching or listening to. Ooh, okay. So I have a scholarly recommendation, mm-hmm. which I'm we love it. to know what this is. And then I have like what I'm reading. Um, I, I read voraciously. I read a lot of literary fiction and young adult fiction because especially queer young adult fiction is having a heyday right now that probably like I would have loved as a as a little closeted queer kid. But um, that's OK, because I'm just going to read it now. So I recently finished Dominique Laporte's History of Shit, um, which has really informed my ideas of Instagram's hygiene, uh, platform hygiene, and how the platform has curated its posting like strategies, or, or let me rephrase that, how Instagram curates and promotes a platform with like very curated posting and, and, and uh, platform practices. So you'll maybe if you read it, you'll see some connections that I'm making there. And then in terms of what I'm reading, I just started, no one is talking about this. I can't remember the author. Lockwood is the mm, Patricia last Lockwood. Patricia Lockwood. It was a Booker shortlist, I think, like two years ago. So it's about social media. And a colleague of mine recommended it to me thinking like, oh, you're going to love this. So I don't know. I'm only a couple pages in. Um, it's interesting so far. I'm I'm chuckling and snorting to myself reading it. So. <laughs> That's like so embarrassing, but yeah, being authentic. So yes. yeah, that's uh, that's what I'm reading. What are you reading before, before oh, we go? Well, um, I just started reading "Places I've Taken My Body" by oh, yeah. Mac- Molly. I want to say Macaulay Brown, and also "The Whale Rider." Ooh, by, that sounds familiar. By Witi Ihimera. Witi Ihimera. Okay. Yeah, that it's a New Zealander, like a Maori tale. Um, cool. It's been made into a movie that. that I have not seen. That's probably where where I'm thinking. Yeah, of. like that title sounds familiar. So but it's very short. It's kind of like a I don't know if it's a children's book, but it's like yeah, it's 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 a tale about mm-hmm. uh, this young girl who can understand whales and nice. um, is part of a Maori tribe that is linked to an ancestral whale rider, but her grandfather doesn't see her as worthy of carrying on this tradition because she's a girl, but she's a girl with a boy's name. And mm-hmm. so I already I'm already like 20 pages in. I was like, this is good. And it's also like beautiful like descriptions of the New Zealand scenery and coasts and stuff. Nice. So yeah. Oh, I need to read that. Thank you for, yeah. for that. Gotta add it to my TBR. <laughs> All right. Is there anywhere now that we've talked about your 
online accounts, your offline accounts, your <laughs> secret shitposting accounts. Is there anywhere you want people to find you online? I'm on Twitter primarily. Um, the the smelly man can kick me off when he burns the ship. I, I will still be there. It's at, at the Sable PhD, one word, um, all lowercase. And I'm also on Mastodon with the same handle. I, I don't really use that as much, but you're welcome to follow and and say hi there too but yeah follow my twitter that's where i'm on maybe too much too much of the day but um yeah you can find me there right and i'll link any articles and things that you want to recommend in the show notes and thank you once more for being such a engaging and energetic guest thank you elena i had so much fun speaking with you and thanks for inviting me to come on and chat of course thank you so much bye Thank you so much, Jess, for having this nuanced conversation with me about how you weave your scholarship, advocacy, and personal online practices together. I'm excited to keep up with your work. You can follow Jess and read her work by checking the links in the show notes. And that's a wrap for Season 3 of Philosophy Casting Call. Please subscribe so you don't miss next season and email me at philosophycastingcallpod at gmail.com or comment on at philocccpod on Twitter or Instagram about your favorite episode from this season. If you want to support Philosophy Casting Call, the best way is to rate the podcast and to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Also, tell me if you use Philosophy Casting Call in your classrooms because I would love to know. If you are in a position to donate, you can also become a monthly supporter on ko-fi.com. Once more, you can follow the podcast at philocccpod on Twitter and Instagram, and all the transcripts live on my website at elenagotiermemorial.com. Until next season, bye! <laughs>